Early 1990s, I'm walking through the Sonora Desert in Arizona and spending time with a friend who is serving in ministry with me. And he came to Christ pretty late in life. He didn't ever go to church as a kid. So his, his language was still pretty raw. Uh, he didn't know church talk, um, which is always fun to be around people like that. And uh, we're just walking through the desert because I'm serving uh, on a ministry out there in Arizona with him. And I lead this particular ministry. And he stops in the middle of our walk and turns to me and said, uh, when did Jesus become real to you? Now, immediately my reaction was shock. Okay, internally I'm thinking, who are you to ask me that? Don't you know I'm heard all over the nation on these radio stations? Don't you know I went to Bible college? I was raised in the church. I lead this ministry. Who are you to challenge me? But that's what I was thinking internally. Externally, I said to him, what do you mean? He said, well, I just mean... When did Jesus become real to you? I said, David, I'm, I'm not understanding your question. He said, well, you know, that, that, that reality that Jesus is more than just a name. And that troubled me. See, I wasn't questioning my faith in the sense of, was I really a believer in Christ? I was questioning whether or not I really owned it. And I don't know if David saw that, but he was willing to push that button. So I, I have hung on to that question for a long time since the early 1990s. That night when I went to bed, I really wrestled with that. As a matter of fact, for the next couple of years, I really wrestled with that. Some events going on in the early 1990s in my life that I was just, man, is this real? We're going to see this morning a group of people who are struggling with this illusion of a spiritual life. They believe they have life with God, but it's really an illusion. And Jesus pokes holes in the bubble of that illusion. I'm not going to start out with John chapter 5, although we're going to end up there this morning. I'm going to start out with a conversation, more of a speech, we would call it, that Peter had with some individuals. Now, mind you, the setting in which you're about to see, Jesus has already been crucified, resurrected from the dead, ascended to God in heaven. It's 40 days after Jesus has been resurrected. And Peter appears in the courtyard of the temple and begins to speak to his friends and to his enemies about what they just did. And what he does is give them a bloody nose. It's a punch to the face about who God really is. I want you to see this on the screen. Acts 2.22. Look with me. This is Peter speaking. Listen to these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man clearly demonstrated to you to be from God by powerful deeds wonders and miraculous signs that God performed through him among you just as you yourselves know this man who was handed over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God you executed by nailing him to a cross at the hands of the Gentiles but God raised him up having released him from the pains of death 
because it was not possible for him to be held in its power. That last portion, I would love to get into that today, but we're not going to. That death cannot hold Jesus down because in him is life. And when you have life, death can't hold you down. Death can't defeat you. But we can't go into that today. This far into John chapter 5, we've been studying this whole chapter for the last couple weeks, we see that as a result of Jesus healing this guy who's paralyzed for life, it looked like, 38 years paralyzed, Jesus heals him. We see that the people who witnessed it and the Jews who were in the leadership role who observed it are not praising God because of what Jesus did. They turn antagonistic against Jesus and begin accusing him because they believe he broke some laws. So they've got an illusion that they understand God's activities, but it's very clear they don't understand what God's doing. And they're living in this world of religiosity. They think they understand. Now the Jews understand very clearly whom Jesus is claiming to be. He speaks like God. He acts like God. But they don't believe it. Something is wrong with their hearts that God can be active among them and they can't even see it. There's some kind of a a veil that's over them. How can they not see this? If you have your Bible this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of 2 Corinthians. If you're not familiar with the Bible, it's in the the latter half. It's also going to, uh, this actually isn't going to be on the screen. 2 Corinthians is far into the New Testament. I'm going to read it for you. But this setting in which Paul is speaking to the church in Corinth explains this veil, this darkness that people have over their hearts. So when they look at Scripture, they they can't understand it. It doesn't make sense to them. Let me have you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 12, and this is what Paul writes to the church at Corinth about this veil. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. Verse 14. This is really a clue. But their minds were hardened for until this very day at the reading of the Old Covenant, meaning the Old Testament, the Old Testament portion of the Bible, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. The veil, the darkness over the heart to understand the things of God is is taken away when someone believes in Jesus. So go on to verse 15. But this day, whenever Moses, to this day, whenever Moses is read, meaning the Old Testament, the law, a veil lies over their heart. Verse 16, but whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. That makes so much sense. How can these individuals not see Because they don't believe. They don't understand who Jesus is. So they're religious, quote-unquote, but they're not saved. They go through all the motions that you see among church people, among people whom you live with in society, people who believe they have a relationship with God, but it's an illusion. It's a plastic Jesus. It's not real to them. Now Jesus tells us, you're either all in or you're not. Literally, he said in Matthew 12, if you're not for me, you're against me. Many are surprised to discover that there are even sides. They believe they can take some middle ground. 
I'm not sure if he's really there or if he really is who he says he is, so I'm going to play the safe zone. I'll go to church once in a while. But Jesus says there's no middle ground. You're either for me or you're against me. There is no safe zone. You're safe in Jesus Christ, but you can't take a middle position. So in light of that setting, I want you to go with me to John chapter 5. If you picked up one of the bulletins this morning when you came in, you'll find the study notes inside there so you can fill in the blanks. The answers will be on the screen. You'll be able to follow along the message that way. But we're picking up in John chapter 5, verse 30, and we're, and we're going to end at John chapter 5 today. So it's taken us four weeks to get to this point, but this is so powerful because what's going on here is Jesus has set up a defense for who he is. He heals the paralyzed man. He explains to them thoroughly who he is. And now what you're going to see today is Jesus is going to call four witnesses who will speak to who he is. Let's go to verse 30 first of all. John chapter 5 and verse 30. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, and but the will of him who sent me. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, first of all, Jesus clarifies for us, he's not acting independently here. What he sees, what he sees God doing, he does. What he hears, he judges. But then he throws the statement in that there's kind of like a wrench into it. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. What's Jesus saying there? He's not implying that his self-witness is unreliable. Rather, he's speaking to the situation that he finds himself in, which is a legal situation. He has the authorities of the Jewish realm, scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees, who are the lawyers, speaking to him about his right to do what he's doing. And so he's using legal terms, and he knows they think legally. So he's speaking to them legally. In a Jewish setting, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees would not allow an individual to testify on their own behalf. You couldn't give your own testimony. They wouldn't accept it. So that's why Jesus says, if I testify about myself, my testimony's not valid. You're not going to accept it. So he's saying it's not valid because under Jewish law, they wouldn't let it in. But the issue is not if the testimony is true. The issue is, are the opponents willing to receive it? And Jesus recognizes this. So what you're going to see in the next, four, or next several verses, seven verses, is Jesus is going to call forward four witnesses. And these four witnesses start out with verse 32. Verse 32 says this, There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. Now remember, he's speaking to Jewish authorities, to the legal realm. So he uses a legal word. I want you to see the definition for the word testify. The word is martyrio. You're familiar with it because in our English language, we use the word martyr. A martyr is someone who will stand up for a cause. And it came to be known as someone who would die for a cause. Martyrio, the root word for it, is to be a witness. So here's the literal definition. To be a witness, testify, to give evidence, bear record, a good report to be well reported of, to give or have testimony. So Jesus is saying, I've got some witnesses here. My martyrio. And this martyrio is one who speaks of me. Who's the first one? The first one is John the Baptist. Now why did Jesus use John, first of all? Well, you remember back in John chapter 1 when we first started this study. 
that the Jews, the leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees sent lawyers out to interrogate John to find out why he had the authority to speak of this one and to call the nation to repentance. Look with me up on the screen, John 1.19. The Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? That word Levites, that's lawyers. They sent the lawyers out to interrogate John. So Jesus uses John the Baptist. Not John who wrote this book, not John the disciple, but John the baptizer, the one who was proclaiming Jesus. John knew clearly and he declared who Jesus was and he confirmed it. If you picked up the notes this morning, I gave you three references to that. He knew exactly who Jesus was. So when the Pharisees came out to him, he said, hey, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. But I know who he is. And he's here, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. As a matter of fact, the three references I give you in your notes are John 1.23, Jesus is Lord, John 129, he's the Lamb of God. John 134, he's the Son of God. So he's very clear about who Jesus is. So look with me at verse 33, the response that Jesus has to this. You have sent to John, and he has martyrio to the truth. He has testified. Now this carried considerable weight. Why? Because among the hundreds of thousands, the millions of Jews who knew who John the Baptist was, they recognized him as a true prophet of God. There had not been one in 400 years, not since the days of Malachi. John the Baptist appears on the scene, and what's he doing? He's calling the nation to repentance. But this offended them because they believe they're God's chosen people. They have no need to repent. We're the chosen people. Why are you speaking to us about repentance? So they believed that he was a chosen man of God, but they rejected what he said. But understand this, John so powerfully identified Jesus as the Lamb of God that even his own disciples left him to follow Jesus because he clearly pointed him out. So the Jews who are interrogating Jesus cannot consistently accept John's word and reject Jesus. So that's why he uses him as his first witness. But look who the second witness is. Jesus speaks to this next. Verse 34, but the testimony, the martyrio, which I receive, is not from man. But I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Now, if you're new to New Hope, you may not know that this study that we're doing is called The Portrait. And the reason for it is what John 1.18 says is that no man has ever seen God, but Jesus has explained him. And we said that along the way through our study, when Jesus gave us brush strokes on the canvas, he's painting this picture for us of God, we would note it. This is one of the brush strokes. This statement here, that God is not dependent upon human testimony to validate him. God doesn't need man to bring validation to him. He is. I am that I am. He doesn't need man. So Jesus says, the testimony, the witness that I have, is not that I receive, that I accept is not from man. My word, my miracles validate who I am. The word that Jesus actually uses for receive is lambano. That's the definition for it. It means to take in or accept. So the witness that I accept, my words speak of who I am. My works speak of who I am. They're far greater in significance. So why bring John into the mix at all? If Jesus isn't receiving testimony, of man necessarily, why even mention John? 
Well, for one specific reason. Because the people, us, humankind, recognize that someone like John, a man, understood who Jesus was. And so Jesus says, this one John spoke of me. This is the way Dr. Warren Wearsby summed it up. I want you to see his quote on the screen. He cited the testimony of John the Baptist not to make up any lack, but to confirm by the mouth of one already recognized as God's true prophet that same truth concerning himself. He did so for the sake of his hearers that they might be saved. The word is sozo. When you see the word saved by Jesus in the Bible, it's always this word, sozo. So when Jesus says, I want to save you, it means to deliver you, to protect you, to preserve. I like that last part. To make you whole. To make you whole. To deliver you to God the Father. To preserve you until the time when you step into eternity. To save you for all time. That's the word Jesus used, sozo. And so he uses John's name because they recognize John's a powerful prophet. So for your sake, so that you would be sozo. You're willing to rejoice in his light for a little while? Jesus is saying, I mean, you've been attracted to this guy like night bugs to a lamp. You're just drawn to his light. You're like moths to a flame. But it was just temporary. You're thrill seekers. You rejoiced for a little while, but it's momentary. And you totally missed his purpose and why he was here to speak about me. So we've got our first witness down, John the Baptist. Let's look at the next witness, verse 36. But the testimony, the martyrio, which I have, is greater than the testimony of John, the martyrio. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, martyrio about me, that the Father has sent me. You think Jesus liked that phrase, the legal term martyrio? I counted it up. He used it 11 times in seven verses. Because he understood the crowd that he was speaking to. This is the word that's so important to him, this martyrio, because these issues are so important. So on the stage enters the second witness. Who's the second witness? Miracles. The signs. John gave us literally seven signs, seven miracles that we understand that Jesus did way more than that. As a matter of fact, in the end of book of John, John wrote down, if I wrote down all the things that Jesus had done, all the books in the world wouldn't contain them. But he gave us seven major miracles. In your notes this morning, I listed the seven for you. They're not on the screen. Let me just read them to you because we've seen a couple of them already. The turning of the water into wine, the healing of the official son, the healing of the paralytic. Those are the three we've seen already. Here's the four that are coming up. The feeding of the multitude, the walking on water, the curing of the blind man meaning the mind that was born blind, and the raising of Lazarus from the dead. These are powerful signs. Why did Jesus refer to these? The the word is ergon, E-R-G-O-N. The works meaning toil. The miracles that I have done speak to something specific. Um, Me, myself, my character, Mark, what I do, my actions speak to my character. Do they not? my competency in how I teach, my moral behavior, my standards of action, they reveal something about me as a person. Jesus is using this as the same example, saying, my aragon, my toil, speaks to who I am. 
These, these works that I do mark me as superhuman. So Jesus is not shy at all about saying, these miracles are something no one else can do. As a matter of fact, he constantly re- refers people to them, saying, pay attention to what I'm doing. Look with me, the first one, there's a whole bunch of people who are questioning him. Look on the screen, John 10, 24. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. The Aragon that I do, the miracles that I do, speak of who I am. And to his own disciples. Do you know that very near the end of Jesus' life, that the disciples were really questioning whether or not he was who he said he was? Even after they'd seen all these things, they were troubled. So in John 14, Jesus speaks to that issue. Look on the screen, John 14, 10. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. They stand on their own. Nobody can bring people back from the dead, heal the paralyzed, cause the deaf to hear. So Jesus is referring them to this, i got miracles as a witness. John the Baptist is my witness. The miracles are my witness. Now let's see who the third witness is. Verse 37. And the Father who sent me, he has martyrio of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him who he sent. So the third witness is God the Father. How'd you like to have him on your witness stand? You got some credibility there? You got John the Baptist. Then you've got the miracles, and now God the Father. Uh, we know, understand, we very clearly understand from Scripture no one has ever seen God, no one comprehends God among humanity. As a matter of fact, that's why I quoted to you John 1.18 just a few minutes ago that no one has seen God, Jesus has explained him. We understand if you go back far enough in time to the time in the book of Exodus on Mount Sinai with Moses, that even when Moses asked to see God, God said, no, you'll burst into flames, Moses. It will destroy you. But I'll pass by and you can see a part of me. And Moses saw his glory. So we understand that God throughout time has interacted with man and man has heard God's voice but we've never seen God. There were a couple times specifically during Jesus' life when God spoke audibly and people physically heard His voice. One of those is at Jesus' baptism. Another one is at the transfiguration. That's a church word meaning Jesus was changed in form while He was still alive on earth. He glowed bright white. And it was so powerful of a sight that people collapsed, they fainted. So at those two incidences, people heard God's voice. One of them we have written down, an eyewitness account. Peter was actually there. I want you to see what he said about this situation. Second Peter 1.16 For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. 
And Peter's about to quote God's voice. This is God speaking. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Verse 18, Peter begins to comment on it again. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Literally, eyewitnesses are saying, we're not lying to you. We heard this ourselves. This is real. God spoke and said, this is my Son. So he's emphasizing John the Baptist, the miracles, God the Father speaking from heaven. Now to a Jew, to hear the voice of God, how overwhelming would that be? I'd be overwhelmed by it. I think I'd probably faint if I heard the voice of God from heaven. For these individuals, they know that God only speaks truth. And so for God to speak that this is His Son means they must have a hard heart if they can't receive it. And that seems to be what Jesus is saying here. The Father who sent me has testified, you have neither even heard His voice or at any time seen His form. Why? Because you don't have His Word abiding in you. You're empty. Your God's plastic. It's an illusion. So the openness of belief must precede the reception of truth. I want to say that again so you get that. The ability to believe that Jesus is who He says He is. You have to be open to this truth to perceive the reality of the truth, to receive the truth. That's what Paul was writing about in 2 Corinthians. That veil over the heart it begins to be removed when people accept that Jesus is God and He removes that veil. But we've got people with some pretty hard hearts here. So they've got this illusion of a life with God, but they really don't have it. So let's go to verse 39 because Jesus has another witness is about to step on the stage. Verse 39, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that martyrio about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. So the fourth witness is the Word of God. So you've got John the Baptist. You've got the miracles that Jesus does. You've got the voice of God Himself, and now the Word of God. Moses heard God's voice. Moses saw God's glory. And he wrote down Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. These individuals who preserved the Word of God, they protected it through generations, thousands of years, handing it down faithfully who looked intently into the Old Testament to understand God, totally were blind to their own Messiah when He arrived on the scene. Why? Because they did not allow God's truth of the Word to breed in their hearts. They read it as a technical book. They knew what the Old Testament contained, but they didn't really believe what was written. I don't know if you've heard this before, but do you know that Jewish parents were so intent on their kids understanding Scripture that up to the age of 12, they would make sure that their children memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. By age 12, they had to be able to recite it back to their priest. And I'm talking about, in the beginning was the Word. I'm sorry, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. From Genesis 1-1 all the way to the end of the book of Deuteronomy. By memory. You don't think your kids are capable of doing that? I bet you they can recite back to you the lyrics of their favorite songs. 
Absolutely, we have the capacity to do it. These people took it so seriously that they made their children memorize it. So do you think they knew what it contained? Absolutely. Can you know the Bible and not know God? Yeah, you really can. You can know what it contains, but not really know the truth. And that's what we're seeing here. So they're displaying a total ignorance of God. They've got all the wisdom of the Old Testament. They've got the full revelation of God in front of them in Jesus Christ, and they totally miss it. Why? Because those who reject Jesus Christ can't know God. That's why Jesus said this in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So that's why Jesus has this response here. You search the scriptures because you think in them you're going to find eternal life. It's me that they're speaking of. That's my fourth witness. All the way back in 586 B.C. when the nation of Babylon swept in and destroyed Israel, wiped out their temple. They took the Jews into captivity for 70 years. In 586 B.C., when they returned to Jerusalem, they were released from captivity. They went back to inhabit Israel again. They found their temple destroyed, and they had no way to worship God anymore. So what did they do? They turned to worshiping the Word. Instead of worshiping God, they worshiped the written Word, and they examined every jot and tittle. They actually counted the letters of every sentence, trying to find some secret clue to eternal life. And that's why Jesus says, you search the Scriptures thinking in them you have eternal life. You're counting every single letter. It's speaking about me. You know the text, but the text contains truth. So that's his fourth witness. So in response to that, verse 41, I do not receive glory from men. Now last night in Saturday night service, I had someone raise the question during our question and answer time afterwards saying, I don't get that verse. Because Jesus is saying, I don't receive glory from men. What are we doing when we sing? What are we doing when we give gifts to the church? We support missionaries. Why is he saying I don't receive glory from men? Because we, we believe we're giving God glory. Well, understand, in the context of what he's saying here, he's talking about mankind in general. Because overwhelmingly, mankind has stiff-armed Jesus. He's saying, I don't receive glory from men as a whole. You personally give glory to God if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're giving and you're singing and you're serving, you're giving glory to God. Don't misunderstand that. What Jesus' point is here is you're rejecting what you know to be true. So Scripture is designed in such a way that when we read it and when we study it, it's intended for us to acknowledge God's glory. So I love the Hebrew word yare, Y-A-R-E, and it means awesome. It's always used in association with God because He is awesome. His yare is powerful. And you see that when you read the text. So apparently, there's a spiritual disconnect for these individuals. Why? Because they're refusing to believe. And they get this plastic relationship with God. Uh, Jesus uses an expression next that is so forceful because he wants to shock them into reality. And he says, I know you. Look at the next phrase, verse 43, 42. But I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. 
I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Mark's translation, you claim to belong to God, but your attitude proves that it's counterfeit. And that's the individuals that we know who have this plastic relationship with Jesus. Because Jesus can say, I know you. And the way that's written in the Greek literally is saying, I've had past experience with you, which has continuing impact into the future. I know your hearts. And if another comes, you're going to receive him. As a matter of fact, there were many that came after Jesus that said, hey, I'm the Messiah, follow me. And all they did was lead Israel into war. There were many false messiahs. So they did follow and did did exactly what Jesus said. So how can you believe if you receive glory from one another? Meaning, you're all about your own ego. You're all pumped up about what you get. But he's saying specifically, I'm about to shock you because he's going to say in another legal term, someone else is going to accuse you. I'm not going to accuse you myself. Look at this. Jesus says in verse 45, Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is utterly incomprehensible. Jesus is saying the one that you revere, your leader, your teacher, is going to stand next to God the Father, and he's going to accuse you before all eternity. Because Moses could say, I wrote about the Messiah. How could you miss it? How could it not be so clear to you? Why? Because his opponents clearly ignored all the evidence. John the Baptist, the miracles, God the Father, and now God's Word. So we would have to say at a really deep level, they totally misunderstood the purpose of the Old Testament. God gave us the Old Testament. If you don't know this, God gave us the Old Testament to show us a standard of laws and to show us his character and nature so that we would understand what it means to fall far short of a holy, infinite God. We can't possibly live good enough to measure up to his holiness. So the Old Testament points all that out. And in the New Testament, the New Covenant, we see God's grace appear through Jesus Christ because man can't live good enough Yet it compels us to live and produce fruit. So they misunderstood the Mosaic Law. So Paul understood it. Look with me on the screen, Galatians 3.24. Speaking of the Old Testament, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. There's the confusion. And this confusion exists among people whom you live and work with every day. They believe they can live good enough to get in the door that Peter's going to stand at the gates of heaven. You've heard all the jokes and swing the doors wide open. Come on, Peter, let me in. I was a pretty good guy. That's not the way it works, Scripture says. It's totally through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And they missed it. They thought they could be good enough. This is the way Leon Morris summed this up. I want you to see his quote. If these people who professed to be Moses' disciples, who honored Moses' writings as sacred scripture, who gave an almost superstitious reverence to the letter of the law, if these men did not really believe the things that Moses had written, 
and which were the constant objects of their study, then how could they possibly believe the spoken words of Jesus? So what you're seeing here is the ultimate rejection. They've got the fourfold witness. John the Baptist, a man recognized by men, declaring Jesus who he is, the miracles that no one else could do. God the Father and the Word of God, four witnesses who speak to who he is. As a result, they crucify the Messiah. They reject everything. How can that happen? You and I live in a reality of a physical world. Our physical world has this one physical law that we know for sure. Our nature abhors a vacuum. Even outer space abhors a vacuum. Where there's black holes, the black holes are constantly sucking things in because there's a vacuum. It's trying to fill the void. That same truth carries into the spiritual world. The spiritual world abhors a vacuum. If you reject that which is true long enough, that which is false will be sucked in and people will begin to believe it. Because why? There is no middle ground. You're either for me or against me. You can't take a safe zone. There's no middle ground. So this illusion of a spiritual life that people have around you, they believe they can take a middle ground. I'm not really sure if Jesus is who he says he is, but you know, I'll go to church once in a while and show up, make people believe I've got this walk with God. And what you find Jesus doing here is saying, I'm going to pop that bubble. Because Matthew 12, 30 says, he who is not with me is against me. You're either all in or you're not. So you understand now why Peter stood in the temple courts and gave those people a bloody nose. This is a shot right to the face. When he understood in Acts 2.22 what we read at the beginning, I'm going to take you back there now in just a minute. He understood because he personally had had a plastic relationship with God. You see that with Peter's life. It wasn't real. And he got it. There was a moment when Peter understood who Jesus was. And he had to say, like each of us have had to say, my Lord and my God. Let me take you back to Acts 2.22. Read it now through the lens of what you just heard explained to you. Listen to these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man clearly demonstrated to you to be from God by powerful deeds, wonders, and miraculous signs that God performed through Him among you, just as you yourselves know. This man who was handed over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you executed by nailing Him to a cross at the hands of the Gentiles. But verse 24, but God raised him up, having released him from the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held in its power. Is that a statement to be excited about? Absolutely. That's what will awake your soul. That's what will take you to the point where you can sing like we sang earlier, awake my soul. I want to sing because this truth, it's not possible for death to hold our king down. In him is life. These people understood this. Do you know that at that point when Peter preached that, thousands of people accepted Christ and received it. The veil was lifted. Their eyes were opened. And thus launched the church. 
And Jesus' message was carried forth into the world. That's something to be excited about. For me, I wrestled with that question. When did Jesus become real to you for a couple of years? There were events that were transpiring in my life and Lori's life in the early 90s that seemed like things were out of control. Not in our marriage, but in the ministry that we were involved in. And we were trying to put the pieces together. Somebody invited me to go to an event in Indianapolis, Indiana in 1994 called Promise Keepers. I was invited to this Promise Keepers event. So I got in this Greyhound. I was begrudgingly going. Didn't want to be there, but I decided to go anyways. And this question kept resonating in my mind. When did Jesus become real to you? And I sat through the Friday night activities, went to my room, went to sleep, came in Saturday morning to this auditorium with 70,000 men. If you're not familiar with what Promise Keepers is, it was a big movement of men in the 1990s who were just there to worship God. And in 1994, I was in Indianapolis as part of this event. I walked into this auditorium, 70,000 men singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And I collapsed and went right to my knees because I was crushed with the reality. (laughs) This God is real. He's not plastic. And I have a real relationship with him. And from that point, I can look back to 1994 and say, that was a benchmark in my life. Not that I was any more saved at that point. But the reality was, he's not plastic. He's my God and my King and my Savior. That's my prayer for you this morning. If you're questioning whether or not Jesus is real to you, I'd love to have that conversation with you. And we can just dialogue after the service if you want to talk about it. Right now, I'm just going to leave it hanging out there, and I'm going to pray for you. So would you pray with me? Father, we entered into this auditorium this morning not knowing what you would be doing in our hearts. We've sung songs, and we've greeted people around us, and we've heard your word. And because of the work of your Holy Spirit, truth has been revealed. God, I ask that you would take that truth now and seal it deeply in our hearts. Let us be changed as a result of being here this morning and hearing what we heard to examine our own life, whether or not our relationship with you is real. God, I, I, I ask this intently because you want your church to go boldly forward, to stand like Peter stood in the courts of the temple and declare that death could not hold you down. It's in the name of this King Jesus who was raised from the dead that we pray. Amen. Hope you have a great week.